Hey, you're listening to Make and Multiply, a podcast devoted to equipping the members of Emmaus Road Church to make and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ in and around the city of Sioux Falls. The people of Emmaus Road are committed to regular rhythms of gathering and scattering. We gather corporately in worship on Sunday mornings. We gather in missional communities and discipleship huddles throughout the week. And then we scatter throughout our city where we want to give every resident of Sioux Falls repeated opportunities to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This is episode 24 of Make and Multiply. Last week, we started working through the doctrine of God or theology proper, and I gave just a brief introduction to a massive topic. We're talking about an infinite God. Uh, We're using limited language, and yet God has made himself known to us in real ways, trustworthy and reliable ways. And so there's this debate that's been around for a long time in theology. Can we actually know anything about God? If we're finite beings with finite minds and finite limited language, can we actually know anything about God? Uh, If we can't know God exhaustively, can, can we know anything accurately? And the answer is yes, God is able to make himself known to his creatures in such a way that Although our knowledge of him is not exhaustive, it is still accurate and true because God is able to make himself known. And so our ability to know God hinges on his ability to make himself known to his creatures in real and meaningful ways. And so God speaks and God communicates and God acts and God has revealed himself and made himself known. And so all of our knowledge of God and his attributes, his character and his ways begins with God's self-revelation in scripture, climaxing in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the Word made flesh, and so we can know God. Last week in episode 23, I talked some about uh, various ways that theologians categorize the attributes of God, and I made a brief case just for what I'd like to do here, talking about God's attributes under two headings, uh, His goodness and His power. And so in this episode, I want to talk some about the attributes of God that would fit under that that category of his his goodness. One of the uh, earliest descriptions in Scripture that God gives of himself comes to us in Exodus 33, 18 through 19. And when Moses is praying and he, he says to God, please show me your glory. So that's his request. Show me your glory. And God answered him and said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And what the English translates the, the Lord, uh, if you look at that verse in your Bible, you'll notice that uh, Lord is all caps. And anywhere the English translation in the Old Testament of the word Lord is in all caps, that means it's translating the Hebrew word Yahweh uh, or the, the personal name of God that God revealed to Moses back in Exodus 3, 13 through 14 when, God, when, when Moses was asking God, if I go back to the Israelites and I tell them the God of your fathers has sent me and they ask me what's his name, what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say to this people, I am has sent me to you. That's God's revealed name, Yahweh, or I am. So that points to God's eternal, self-reliant, independent 
existence. We, we call this the aseity of God. It means that God exists from himself. He doesn't depend on anyone or anything else for anything at all. He is self-existent, self-reliant. So we'll talk about that when we talk about the attributes of God's power. Uh, so back to Exodus 33, Moses requests, show me your glory. God says, I'll make my goodness pass before you and I will pr- proclaim before you my name, the Lord or Yahweh or I am. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So God himself puts his emphasis on his name, I am, and his goodness, his grace, and his mercy. And then when God does what he told Moses he would do, this happens in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, when the Lord passes before him and proclaims the Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So this overflowing and repeating emphasis on the goodness of God in terms of numerous attributes, his mercy, his grace, his patience, he's slow to anger, his abounding in steadfast love, his faithfulness, the fact that God keeps steadfast love for thousands, the fact that God is forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And then God says, but who will by no means clear the guilty? He visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So God is also a just and righteous God. All of these attributes of God and more revealed throughout Scripture, I think we could categorize under this heading of God's goodness, God's love. Uh, When we speak of God's goodness, there are kind of two senses of that word good. There's there's moral goodness. Uh, Something is good or bad, morally speaking. And of course, goodness is defined. It's measured by God's standard. So when we're speaking about God's goodness in terms of his moral excellence and uprightness, we mean God is good because he himself and everything that he is and everything he does conforms to God's standard. And we measure anyone and anything else in its goodness based on its uh, conformity to God's own standard. And so in this sense, the moral goodness of God, there's some overlap with the righteousness of God. And the other sense of the word good or goodness is benevolence. That is God's willingness to work for the benefit, for the good of others. And scripture emphasizes the benevolence of God over and over again. And it's remarkable. This this attribute of God, God is good. He's morally upright and righteous and he's benevolent. Listen to Genesis 32, 12. Jacob prayed, But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So Jacob is appealing to this promise. What was the promise God made to him? I will surely do you good. Likewise, uh, Moses says to the Israelites in Numbers 10, 29, the Lord has promised good to Israel. That's what God has promised in Nehemiah, Nehemiah 9, 25, uh, when they are recounting the history of Israel and Israel's faithlessness to God and God's goodness and redemptive work on Israel's behalf, Nehemiah 9, 25, the Israelites are remembering that their forefathers captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things. And they 
enumerate, they, they elaborate on that cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. So the goodness of God has this sense of the abundance, delightful things, satisfying things. Uh, think of wine and oil and fruit trees and abundance. And the people of God enjoy God's goodness through his good gifts. Jeremiah thirty-two forty, God makes this promise. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. Just think about what that means. The benevolence of God, his his commitment to do good, to work for the benefit of his people, for their well-being. And Isaiah 64, 4 says, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. The implication is no one has ever heard of, no one has ever comprehended or or thought up or imagined a God like this who works for the good of those who wait for him. Uh, People are used to thinking of a God as uh, you serve the God, you work for the God. Um, Nobody has ever heard of or thought of a God who works on behalf of his people. What kind of God is this? He is the one who works and he works benevolently for the good of those who wait for him. So that's God's goodness, his benevolence. And we see implications of this then for how we relate to God. Uh, for example, when David prays in Psalm 16 two, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. Because God is good, he is the source of all good things and you do not enjoy any good thing apart from God. He's the source of good and good comes from him. And if you enjoy any good thing, it's a gift from God. Psalm 34, 8 through 10 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's good. He's satisfying. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So apart from him, there is no good. In him, there's no lack of good. Likewise, James 1, 17 says, every good and perfect gift is from him. So in God, you lack no good thing. Apart from God, you have no good thing. He is the source of all goodness. And what's incredible is that scripture teaches uh, Psalm 145, verse 9, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. So his people who are in covenant relationship with him have particular uh, comfort and and um, assurance of God's commitment to do them good in unique ways. But God's goodness actually extends to all of his creation. He is good to all that he has made. His mercy is over all that he has made. So uh, not even just people, but animals enjoy God's goodness and they look to him for provision. Uh, God is good to all. And the concept of his benevolence then is related to several other attributes. And it's most helpful to think of these kind of like different facets of uh, a diamond where uh, these are not, it's hard to draw a, a sharp line of distinction between them. They're just different angles of looking at who God is, and, and each one kind of puts emphasis on a, a different aspect of this, but they're they're related, and there's a lot of overlap between these. And so related to God's goodness is God's attribute of love. Uh, his love, in particular, emphasizes God's self-giving 
um, radical giving of himself to others in a relational way. So John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God loves, so he gives. Likewise, Galatians 2.20, the son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Or Ephesians 5.2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So God's love is his giving of himself in relationship to his people. Uh, Related to his goodness and his love is his grace. And like his love and goodness, grace refers to God's benevolence. Um, The emphasis when we're talking about his attribute of grace, the emphasis is on the fact that the favor God shows to his people is unmerited favor. It is favor given to those who uh, not only don't deserve it, but actually deserve his wrath instead. And so we're not just undeserving, um, we are ill-deserving. I think it was Jerry Bridges who, who made that emphasis. God's grace, the emphasis is on how ill-deserving we are of his favor. And, and yet, instead of uh, showing us wrath, God's disposition, God's attitude toward you is favor. That That's grace. And then in the New Testament, grace, or the, the Greek word uh, charis, takes on this sense of God's active power toward you and in you. So, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, uh, Paul recounts how the Lord said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. So Paul sees the grace of God as active power toward him and for him and in him, the power of God manifested in his life. And so God's grace is active and powerful working in us and for us, for our good. Uh, Related to his love and his goodness and his grace is God's mercy. Or um, in the Old Testament, the word often translated mercy, the the Hebrew word is chesed, which is translated in in numerous words. Translators have a hard time nailing down a specific word that captures the whole range of, of meaning of this Hebrew word. Sometimes it's translated mercy, loving kindness, steadfast love, Uh, kindness, goodness. Uh, The idea really is God's chesed, his his mercy, his loving kindness. It is a matter of covenant love or covenant faithfulness. And John Frame points out that the key to understanding chesed is understanding covenant. God enters into a covenant relationship with people, makes promises to them, and then he is faithful to to keep those promises. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. He keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Or Deuteronomy seven twelve, Because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. So, Chesed means covenant loyalty, faithfulness to keep the promises of his covenant. So when you turn in faith to trust God's promises, every time you are consciously setting your hope in, your trust in a promise from God, you are appealing to his covenant-keeping love or his chesed. The fact that God enters into covenant with us, then we can ask ourselves, so what has God covenanted to do? And, And that sends us back to his 
benevolence, his promise is that he will not cease doing good to us all the days of our lives. Jeremiah 32, 40. Um, I will not turn away from doing good to them. That's his covenant promise to us. So how do we know he'll keep his promise? Well, because of his covenant loyalty, his covenant love, his steadfast love. Uh, Related to all of this is his compassion. God is compassionate toward those in distress. And he is um, not constrained or compelled by anyone or anything. He is absolutely free and eager to act on behalf of those who are in need and unable to help themselves. That's God's compassion. And when God shows compassion, he does exceedingly more than anything we could ask or imagine. And God's compassion just gives us incredible hope because um, it has to do with the fact that we are in need and God. it is God's disposition to act for the benefit of those in need. So we all begin with a problem and we come to a God who is compassionate toward those in need. Um, Another one of God's attributes under his goodness is his holiness, or the fact that God is devoted, wholly devoted, completely uh, dedicated to seeking his own honor. Uh, Oftentimes, God's holiness is defined as moral purity, and that's certainly uh, true of God, and I would put that more under his his righteousness or his moral goodness. Uh, Sometimes God's holiness is spoken of as as his transcendence or his uh, the fact that he is above us and beyond us. And I think there's an aspect of this, but I, I think the, the sense of holiness, it, it has to do with being set apart or devoted. And um, the emphasis in scripture is on the fact that God is supremely devoted to himself as the highest and best thing that exists. God's holiness means that he alone is worthy of worship. And so um, God is holy And he calls us to be holy also, to be wholly devoted to him, just as he is devoted to his own glory. Uh, Related to these, we could also include his attributes of patience and his peace. Um, But who God is, just you think about all of those collectively. Uh, God is love, and so he gives himself to his people. He willingly enters into covenant relationship where he covenants, promises to do good to us. And then because of his character and his attributes, he keeps covenant, keeps his promises. He's faithful. He's compassionate. He's merciful. He's patient. Uh, What an incredible God to be in relationship with. No one has ever heard of a God like this who works for the good of those who wait for him. Thanks for listening to Make and Multiply. If you have questions about anything related to discipleship huddles, missional communities, or gospel fluency, please email me at ryan at emmausroadsf.com. And if you're not currently part of a huddle or MC, let me know and I would love to help you get connected. If you're interested in more, you can find this content in our discipleship huddle guide, which is based on the DNA guide by Saturate Resources music on this episode is called Everywhere by Lee Rosevere and it's used under a Creative Commons license.